Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I want to thank all of my listeners who come from around the world and have listened to almost 10 years of podcasts that I've done, over 581 podcasts to date. And thank you, thank you, thank you for your support, your listening, the action that you take, the blog posts that you write, and the things that you do to help make this show what it is today. Um, and today, Matthew Fox is joining us from the San Francisco Bay Area. I've interviewed Matthew a couple of times before. We're going to be speaking with him about a relatively new book. I think it's only a couple of months old, called Away to God, Thomas Merton's Creation Spirituality Journey. And every time I have Matthew on with me, it's always a great discussion about spirituality. Good day to you, Matthew. How are you doing? Hello, Greg. Good to talk to you again. Good to talk to you as well, and thank you for your time and the opportunity to do this. Um, this book has certainly a lot of accolades and a lot of praise for it. And what I am going to do is let my listeners know a tad bit about you. Again, for those who want to uh, learn more about Matthew, you can go to www.matthewfox.org. That's not .com. That's matthewfox.org. There you'll see where Matthew is speaking. You can learn more about the books that he's written um, and so on. So Matthew is the author of over 30 books, including Meister Eckert, The Hidden Spirituality of Men, Christian Mystics, and the book we're going to be talking about today. He's a preeminent scholar and popularized of Western mystics. He became an Episcopal priest after being expelled from the Dominican order by Cardinal Ratzinger, who later became Pope the 16th. You can visit him again at matthewfox.com org. Sorry, dot org. So, you know, I actually kind of dug here and, you always look at why people write books, and you've kind of had a fascination um, with Thomas Merton for some time. I think you mentioned him in even prior books that we've done. What's the fascination with Merton's creation spirituality journey, and you know why did you choose to write this book now? Well, last year was the um, centennial of Thomas Merton's birth, and I was asked by the Thomas Merton Center in Louisville, Kentucky, which is very near his monastery, um, to give a talk on Thomas Merton and myself. And um, in preparing that talk, I realized I had a lot of material, much more than just for one-hour talks. So the book was really born out of that um, invitation, but also because of Merton was an amazing uh, religious writer and figure in the 20th century, and um, I think he really deserves our attention. He he is such a fine writer, and and he names very well the, the the spiritual journey of people. And then I realized that his his own journey was really um, paralleled mine in many ways. And so far as he came to a an awakening in 1958, Dr. Suzuki, the Japanese Buddhist who brought Zen to North America. Um, he and Merton were engaged in, in correspondence, and Suzuki told Merton that he really had to study Meister Eckhart, uh, the one great Zen thinker of the West, and 
Merton started to do that in, in 1958, and it totally changed Merton. He was really converted from being a, a dualistic and kind of uh, guilt-ridden um, you know, monk of uh, 19, from 1940 to 1958 to being a really prophetic figure in the last 10 years of his life. And, and so that change was brought about by Meister Eckhart, and Eckhart, of course, is a very important mystic in my life as well. So we, I realized how much Merton and I had in common. Also, I owed Merton because he's the one who told me to go to Paris to get my doctorate in spirituality. And um, uh, it was a result of that that I met my mentor, Pierre Chenoux, the French Dominican, who named the creation spiritual tradition for me. So I can really say that all the trouble I got in was due to Thomas Merton. Well, the interesting thing is when you look at the book jacket cover, you've got him holding looks like a hoe. He's on, he's in the center of a Zen circle. And in the other hand, he's got a writing implement. And, you know, he died in 68 at 53. And he, it w was really this um, spiritual journey, you call it, parallels the articulation of creation spirituality and the four paths. Speak with my listeners, if you would, um, this about creation spirituality in these four paths that really, you know, have this, uh, as you call it, this this back deep background in um, in what looks to be Zen tradition. Well, yes, I got the four paths. I was able to name them by studying uh, Meister Eckhart years ago, and um, because they're all there. Um, in a deep way in Eckhart, although they aren't explicitly named. Um, <clears throat> but with Merton, um, they're truly there too, and he's such a, a good articulator, such an artist with words, that uh, he, he he speaks to them in great depth. For So it begins with the Via Positiva, which is the experience of, um, of awe and wonder. Mm -hmm. And... Um, uh, Merton has a lot to say about that. He says, uh, contemplation uh, is the highest expression of man's intellectual and spiritual life. It is that life itself, fully awake, fully active, fully aware that it is alive. It is spiritual wonder. It is spontaneous mm -hmm. awe at the sacredness of life, of being. It is gratitude for life, for awareness, and for being. So those are Merton's words, and they, they demonstrate how thoroughly um, grounded he was in the Via Positiva. And he he writes about it so often. He's, he's a Welsh uh, background, and therefore he's Celtic, and he sees very much the, the experience of God in, in nature. He says, Every plant that stands in the light of the sun is a saint and an outlaw. Every tree that brings forth blossoms without the command of man is powerful in the sight of God. He says, um, he wrote in his diary, Dance in this sun, you tepid idiot. Wake up and dance in the clarity of perfect contradiction. Mm -hmm. You fool, it is life that makes you dance. Have you forgotten? So, it goes believe, on and on about the beauty of... Do you believe that, that this via positiva is really, in essence, this insight, this inspiration, this uh, intuitive element that we've kind of named these things from a, a way to identify that. I mean, you call it awe and delight and amazement. But to me, that also relates to the kind of common listeners. It's about 
you know, finding intuition, you know, figuring it out, right? Yes, it's it's about allowing the wonders of life to to pour over you and to to respond with gratitude and reverence. Um, yes, and a lot of that is about intuition. Um, but uh, again, that's the beginning of things. That opens the heart up. It opens right. the mind up to wisdom and, you, and not just knowledge. Yeah, and then he talks about via negativa and then yes. via creativa and via transform. I don't get them all these right. Transformativa. Yeah, transformativa. <laughs> but the via negativa is this silence, it's darkness, it's suffering. It's so. Explain that one for our listeners because these are these four paths that really make up the essence. That's right. That's yeah. right. Well, there are really those two dimensions to the via negativa. One is silence itself. So it's letting go of, of images and of, of words and just being present in silence. And Merton is very big about that, about the importance of solitude. And um, uh, so too, of course, was Meister Eckhart, his, his mentor, who talks about the uh, the most noblest prayer of all is to have your mind bare of all things. And and really, it's a very Buddhist idea, mm-hmm. um, the, the idea that, that solitude is, is essential for our encountering our deepest selves. But the other dimension to the via negativa is about suffering and about letting suffering be suffering. And um, uh, that, too, is is um, is a reality that, that Merton writes about. And he says that wisdom today has to begin with, with sorrow. There's so much to be grieving about. So grief is part of the spiritual path, too. But then the via creativa comes, and that's creativity. And Merton was nothing if not creative. He was a great poet and a wonderful writer, but he also uh, took up photography in the monastery and, and um, saw it as a contemplative practice. And um, he also uh, was a musician. He loved jazz. He used to hang out at the jazz clubs in Louisville. Um, and to this day, they are interviewing 80-year-old black men who were young men in Louisville clubs in the 60s when Merton was there. And they say there was this unusual white guy who showed up because there weren't any white people in the club. And it was Merton. He said all he wanted to talk about was Zen Buddhism and um, meditation and and jazz. So uh, Merton was a great jazz lover, too. And... um, I certainly, so can, I certainly can see the connection between those three. Definitely, <laughs> definitely. definitely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that fed his soul. And um, then the Via Transformative is about social justice, and it's about the role of the prophet, if you will, of interfering. And and Merton was very much <clears throat> uh, alert about uh, issues, including ecology. For example, Rachel Carson wrote her book, Silent Spring, which is recognized as the first kickoff of the ecological movement. It came out in 1962. And she was immediately fired by her science department. She was a scientist. They said, this is an hysterical woman uh, worried about trees and bunnies. But Merton, in contrast, wrote her a three-page letter praising her book and saying because of it, they were going to cease using DDT on the monastery uh, farm. And um, because of her book, he now understands why the birds were disappearing uh, 
on the farm and so forth. So he immediately was um, was an ecologist overnight when when uh, when the, the academic establishment, the scientific establishment, was actually uh, you know, poo-pooing the work of Rachel Carson. And when it came to the Vietnam War, Merton was the first religious figure in America to come out against the war, and um, it cost him his life because um, his last journey was to Asia, and um, on that journey he met the Dalai Lama, who was only 33 at the time, and many other religious uh, figures in the East. And um, because Merton, again, thanks to Meister Eckhart and Suzuki, became a pioneer in interfaith and connecting East and West. So not only um, Dalai Lama loved Merton, but so did Thich Nhat Hanh, who nominated him for a, for a Nobel Peace Prize. But um, Merton's last hours, he was giving a talk on Karl Marx and monasticism at a uh, retreat center for monks and nuns in Bangkok, uh, Thailand, and uh, three hours after he gave the talk, he was dead. And um, I've I've spoken with three CIA agents who were there in Southeast Asia at the time, and um, and uh, between the three of them, it's it's evident that he was he was done away with by the, um, the CIA. And um, of course, it was he died the same year that King was murdered and that Robert Kennedy was murdered. So are you so, saying are you saying that you believe that it is or potentially his early demise uh, that that was a, the work of people who were attempting to eradicate him from the planet? Yes, yeah, he would need that a martyr for peace. Because hmm. I can tell you, the first CIA agent who I asked about this, who was there at the time, mm-hmm. he said, "Well, I neither affirm it nor deny it." Namely, because I asked him, "Did you people kill Merton?" The second person said, uh, CIA agent said, we were flooded with money at the time with absolutely no um, accountability. So any CIA person here in the Southeast Asia who felt Merton was a threat to America could have had him done in with no questions asked. Mm-hmm. And the third person I asked, and this was just after the book came out a few months ago, he was there. He said, yes, we killed him. And he also said, the last 40 years of my life, I've been spending uh, trying to cleanse my soul from what we were doing there in the 1960s, uh, three years that I was part of the CIA in the Southeast Asia. So um, those are the... How fascinating. That is fascinating. It's unfortunate because here he had someone at 53 years old who still had so much to contribute. But again, as a Zen believes, that is, you know, kind of written in the card, the karma, um, it was his time, uh, and look what he's left us. And one of those things is, you said, his role is an art in spirituality, he's a poet, photographer. Speak with us, if you would, because he's, he's such a fascinating guy in that respect. Um, his creativity, as you said, calligrapher, lover of jazz, um, how did this affect or have what you would call a big effect on how he expresses his spirituality because what he was doing he was an integrator of all of these religions into a sense of spirituality correct that's right i i think um the best way to answer your question is to um let merton speak so let me share one of his poems that i have in my book here called first lesson about man 
Man begins in zoology, he writes. And of course, that's his affirmation of evolution. He is the saddest animal. He drives a big red car called anxiety. Whenever he goes to the phone to call Joy, he gets the wrong number. Therefore, he likes weapons. He knows all guns by their right names. He drives a big black Cadillac called Death. Now he's putting anxiety into space. He flies his worries all around Venus, but it does him no good. Man is a saddest animal. He begins in zoology and gets lost in his own bad news. So that's wow. the Merton poem. That and is a great, so many. Great that something. Poem. Yeah, that it's is a powerful poem. It's, very and it's also humorous. Yes. It, it, to me, it's vintage Merton. That uh, it's deep, and it's um, it's it's current, uh, and he's raising really profound questions. And that whole issue of um, putting anxiety into space, flying our worries around Venus, that was a real issue for Merton because. He was critical of technology. Um, he, in his day, of course, a big technological issue was getting to the moon. And they got to the moon a year after he died, actually. But uh, he criticized that. He said that um, even ants can fly. He said, we can fly uh, all over the universe if we want. But um, if we don't deal with the bigger issues of the nature of the human species, we're just going to um, bring our our, our dangers uh, elsewhere. This is how we put it. What can we gain by sailing to the moon if we are not able to cross the abyss that separates us from ourselves? This is most important of all voyages of discovery. Without it, all the rest are not only useless, but disastrous. He says, um, we are still nothing about a flying ant until we recover a human center and a human spirit in the depth of our own being. So I think this is really important, especially today, because obviously today the big technological issue is not getting to the moon, but it's all these gadgets coming out of Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And if you check it out, ISIS has every one of these gadgets, and they use it for evil purposes. Mm-hmm. The man who uh, murdered 50 people in Orlando nightclub he um, was doing Facebook and uh, texting while he was murdering these 50 people. Right. So clearly, uh, technology is not going to save us. There are these issues of human nature that have to be explored that Merton was writing about 65 years ago. Why don't we put some money into that exploration and not just into gee whiz technological gadgets? And um, I think this is a more pressing question today than it was 65 years ago when he first brought it up. Um, And um, what I conclude from this is that I think Silicon Valley should tax itself. It makes tons and tons of profit every year. A a modest amount of that should go into the kind of arenas that Merton's alluding to, the spiritual, psycho arenas to discover why are, are human beings capable of so much evil and what can we do about it what what traditions and, and practices can we draw from our spiritual traditions around the world to calm that reptilian brain that is so busy uh killing the rest of nature and, and one another too i couldn't agree with you more that's a wonderful statement i i was mentioning that mentioning that to some other people that you know some of this 
huge technology money and money that's going in many different directions if reapplied toward um, not just the study, but really, you know, everyone will tell you if you can't shift the mindset and the spiritual nature of people, you can't shift anything on this planet. And, you know, we see the crumbling of all of these things that are going on with our environment and our people and our society, yet we're not spending enough, I'm not going to say just money, but really our own energy and effort. People like yourself are advocating it, writing books. Now, you, you said that Merton was, it was not just a deep contemplative, but that also he had this passion for justice, which came through with Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and the Native American Indians. And he spoke out on that. Can you uh, talk with us, if you would, a bit about this deep contemplative practice and spirit that he had for really all of these, I'm going to call them, um, cultures that he thought that were there wasn't being injustice done to passion for justice. Well, uh, that, that's right. He was very attuned to the racism in American history, um, mm -hmm. and uh, for example, he was very supportive of Martin Luther King uh, when King was still considered very out there and very dangerous, you might say. And of course, Merton was living in the South in Kentucky at the time, which was very okay. segregated and so forth. Uh, he also supported Malcolm X, but he also very much uh, supported uh, the Native American people. Um, in 1962 or 63, a book came out called My Name. On, on Ishi, who was one of the last tribal members in the California tribe uh, to survive because the governor of California in the late 19th century put a $50 bounty on Indian Indians to kill an Indian. And um, so these tribes went and hid. Well, Ishi was the last member of his tribe, and so he surrendered, came out of hiding in 1911 in the... Um, professor of anthropology University of California Berkeley took him in and he lived in his home for six years and then he died a natural death but a book came out on him in 1962 and again Merton immediately responded by writing his own book called my name is Ishii and in it he talks about genocide and about how again technology has has increased our capacity for genocide uh, in our time and he uh, he writes very movingly about the Native American experience and about uh, how religion, uh, too, religious conquistadores and Franciscan friars and others uh, contributed to the to the demise of the of the Native American and how uh, so much of the Native American spirituality was about eros. It was about the love of life, but that this was the main um, uh, uh, enemy, I guess you might say, of, of, of the Christian missionaries. And he, he says that they fought Eros, these missionaries. They were fighting Eros. They were fighting uh, people who were closer to nature and closer to the, the, the powers of nature and the, and the earth than they were. And so they resented it and they fought it. So, so Merton not only talks about these historical realities, but he offers an analysis of why um, there was this kind of um, uh, a hatred uh, toward uh, toward people of color and toward indigenous people. Uh, he 
he also can be a great critic of religion itself, um, and uh, he's, he's not afraid to take on the church, mm-hmm. and uh, he does that also in his prophetic, as you say, the at the mention of his thinking that is justice-oriented, because as you say, he was both a deep contemplative and a deep activist, and um, many activists came to him for support. For example, Dan and Philip Berrigan, who were Catholic priests committed to nonviolence, but um, uh, they and, and they they would go to jail often uh, for protesting nonviolently the war in Vietnam, but they would go regularly to. Merton's Hermitage and Monastery to sit with him and be mentored by him. Mm. So his his passion for justice was not an abstract thing. He was very involved, even though he was in, was living in a hermitage. How do you think Merton, if he was alive today, and obviously he died in 68, so he was exposed to some of this, but would, would really... Uh, respond to the gay and lesbian community and gay marriage and um, all of these issues associated. You know, in other words, you know, you've got this fundamental uh, moral Christian belief, and now you've got something that he would need to address. What would be your viewpoints on that? Well, in his in his lifetime, <clears throat> the women's movement was emerging just emerging and he was on it immediately he he entered into a, a long correspondence with uh, dr rosemary ruther who was quite a radical feminist catholic theologian she was only 28 years old at the time and he was like 50 or 51 but they uh, had a long correspondence and he was learning a lot from her and he was taking a lot of of of, of gruff from her as well and uh and with with Authentic humility. He was uh, he was learning. He definitely was a a feminist a theologian. He called God Mother, and um, and he was definitely trying to bring back a balance of, of gender to our understandings of of divinity. Uh, he was very taken by Julian Arnowich's uh, work, a 14th century mystic who who wrote extensively extensively about God as Mother, but. Um, um, the the Stonewall uh, riots had not happened uh, before he died. They happened after he died. So he was not that explicit about um, the gay uh, awakening uh, as, of course, I think he would have become had he lived longer. But he was um, definitely uh, criticizing uh, the church's attitude towards sexuality. Um, and uh, so I think there's no question he would have been on the side of justice toward gay and lesbian people had he lived to to see that uh, movement uh, really mature and come into its own. Well, you know, I recently, it's been, oh, a year ago now, and, and attended an event uh, that Tammy put on, Sounds True, that you were there, and you did an event in a in a big room where we danced and we sang and we met and we cried and we did all kinds of stuff. And it was really this, it was quite moving what you did, but also there were a lot of young people there, and you talk about churchiness. Um what makes you believe that the young people today um, have a high degree of interest or would have interest in Merton's philosophies? Um, and do you find them really taking this on and wanting to read about Merton and finding out more about 
um, what we would call his fundamental beliefs, but also about uh, his spiritual, the spiritual context at which he was trying to address things. Well, first of all, I want to um, respond to how I didn't realize you were present at that cosmic mass that we did with us. Uh, I was, two, and you did, a, ago. That you was did a wonderful concert mass, and and there were a lot of young people there and old people. But sure. my point was, we were we were all there in the same room, and you you did an amazing. And people job. from many traditions, as as you recall, I <clears throat> I asked what traditions were present that day. There were Sufis, there were Jewish rabbis, there were Buddhists, there were <clears throat> Hindus, there were atheists and and Christians of many stripes. So yeah, it was a powerful experience. And we we do that cosmic mass in in many places and. Um, it, it often is a very powerful experience for people, and uh, it's part of your the answer to your question. The young people, I think, are very interested in ritual, but ritual that that is transformative, that's uh, that, that's deep and fun, and uh, and 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 brings brings a real community alive. So that's part of what we've been doing there, but. Um, a lot of young people are exposed to Thomas Burton in religious classes um, in in our universities, including our state universities, because he is so articulate. He's such a fine writer that um, uh, many religious teachers recognize that he is uh, is a powerful spokesperson for um, <clears throat> for a, a spirituality that's both contemplative and active. And a lot of young people I meet today are very interested in that. The whole new monasticism movement is about being active in the world, but with a contemplative um, uh, base that uh, from which you you operate. So it's not just an action-reaction response. It's not a reptilian brain response. It's not just pure politics. It, uh, it incorporates spirituality. And uh, with that, there's more imagination and creativity. There's more uh, 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 encouragement to forgive and to be creative and to start over. So, yes, I find that young people are very excited about Merton. And again, he speaks to the human heart because he's such a, a good writer. And um, and he's speaking from a, from a deep place. He's done his own inner work. Now, Matthew, you basically at the end of this book, you have a bibliography of Merton's works, and you know it's all it's all from the collection of poems of Thomas Merton to contemplative prayers. If you were to tell our listeners, there's one book that you would pick up of Merton's besides yours. I'm just saying, <laughs> people want to go if they want to go deeper, and some might. Um, one of them is called Mystics and Zen Masters. Which one would you say would be the best one for somebody to read besides this book? Mm. Well, um, one of his very last books, his second to last book, is not a long book, but it's um, it's a very good book, and it's on um, it's really essentially on on Meister Eckhart, and um, <clears throat> it's called Mystics. Uh, it's called um, uh, Zen and the Birds of Appetite. Zen and the Birds of Appetite. And and he's in dialoguing with Tata Suzuki in there too. So it's definitely a book about East Meeting West, but it's also about um Meister Eckhart, who's as deep a Western thinker as there is really. And it's also significant, I think, because it was his second to last book. The the book that came after it was um, a long uh, poem uh book. So I think in some ways that book is very mature. 
and um, it also covers several years. It's really a collection of his essays. It covers several years of his uh, his growing up uh, spiritually, the last years of his life. So that comes to my mind right away. Um, of course, his book Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander is also very readable and, and again, is a marvelous uh, combination of his interest in both the contemplative and the active and prophetic uh, uh, spiritual life. Well, I will say that you've definitely done Thomas Merton justice here on the creation of a spiritual journey with this book. For my listeners, the book is called A Way to God um, by Matthew Fox. We've been on with him speaking about this new book and um, his dedication to writing this book uh, about Thomas Merton's and Merton's journey. And I would say for any of my listeners, you can go to Amazon to pick this book up. I'm sure it's available in also Kindle version as well. Um, it's great reading. And I think importantly, uh, the reason I do all these different podcasts, Matthew, is to provide diversification for the listeners and say, look, there are things out there to explore one of the things the point, poignant that you said um, uh, is the the amount of time we spend in contemplation. And I think part of if we would spend more time in meditation, contemplation, um, at least in that silent state, as Merton identifies in one of those four laws or four paths, um, is, is so important because it gives us a whole new perspective about how to look at our world and our life and our soul, and our ego, and where we are in in the world of that. And it's always a pleasure speaking with you. Any parting words for our listeners that you'd like to leave about Merton or spirituality? (laughs) Well, again, I thank you, Greg, for having a program like this where we can talk about uh, useful and important issues like Thomas Merton. Um, Yeah, one thing I, I like about this book is that by applying the four paths to Merton, it's a wonderful way to kind of understand Merton. Uh, because he writes in great depth and also great breadth. He wrote over 60 books. So kind of how do you kind of lasso that and make sense of it all? But I think the four paths that you and I have talked about and that I carry through in this book, I think they help to summarize uh, some of the deep and important um, uh, directions in which Merton moved, in which he invites us to move to as this, this way to God that he talks about. Well, and the good thing about him is if you you look at them, they're very simple. And I think that's the most important thing is that you you can understand this through just looking at these simple paths and, and living your life, emulating it, and making shifts in your behavior as a result of understanding these paths. And um, I want to thank you for your contributions to the world over the years and your contributions through your books and your writings and your outcroppings and your opportunities to hear more about you it's always a pleasure having you on my show um thanks for thanks for being on uh inside personal growth and spending a little bit of time with us well, thank you greg thanks for your program bye now. 